a little bit more intimate, a little bit more relational, uh, but really we also want this to be a place where it's easy for you to invite people along. Uh, and so that, that's our heart behind what we're doing here. We want this to be a place where people can easily be brought in and discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus. Uh, but, but one of the things we really didn't want to shift around too much as we moved uh, the evening service around is we didn't want to uh, change how we approached teaching the Word. Uh, so we're Bible guys here at Kenmore. We, we believe it is the uh, authoritative and inerrant Word of God. We believe that God actually speaks to us today through His Scriptures. Uh, I'm such a Bible guy that I even believe that the leather is genuine and the maps are all 100% accurate in my Bible. But uh, so, so the way we do teaching here in the evening service is we just move through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we let God speak to us however he would through those verses. Uh, and so if you haven't been with us for the last couple of months, we're, we're working our way through the book of Acts. Uh, and so that's sort of our plan for the rest of the year and probably into the start of next year as well. Uh, and if the thought of being in the same book of the Bible for uh, multiple months at a time absolutely terrifies you, uh, well, we do break things up into series so that, again, it's, it's more approachable and you're not going to feel out of the loop if you come midway through. So all that being said, tonight we're kicking off a brand new series called Seeing Faith. Uh, and that's going to take us through to the end of uh, Acts chapter 14. And, and really, the whole heart behind this series is there's this verse in chapter 14 where uh, Paul is preaching a sermon. So he's in a setting like this where there's a, co a congregation around him and he's preaching the word and, and midway through the sermon, he stops. And he looks around at this crowd that's gathered about him and he spots out one man standing at the back. Well, not standing because the man is paralytic. He's paralyzed from the legs down. And we're told Paul looks at this man intently and he sees that he has faith. Uh, and really, as I was reading through that a couple of weeks ago, the, the question it, it put on my heart is, what does it look like? to have the kind of faith that someone can just look at you and they can see it? What does it look like to have the, the sort of uh, faith that it's actually visible to the world around us, there's something different inside of you because of the hope you have? And so really that's the question we're, we're planning on unpacking over the next couple of weeks. What does it look like to have a faith the world can see? Does that sound good? Awesome. <laughs> we'll get there, we'll get there. It's okay, it's, it's the first week. Uh, so as I said, Acts chapter 13, verse 44, and if you've got your Bible with you, you can turn there now. Uh, if you're going to be reading on your phone, I'm just going to hope and pray you're not scrolling through Instagram or TikTok. Uh, but where we're picking up, Paul and Barnabas, they are midway through the very first church mission trip. So they're, they're bouncing back and forth between different towns across the Greek mainland, and they're bringing the, the word of God, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, everywhere they go. Uh, and where we last left them off three weeks ago, uh, Paul had just preached an absolutely amazing sermon, uh, that he grabbed a hold of the gospel, he contextualized it, he, he applied it to the lives of those around him, and he showed them how Jesus can actually meet the real cry of their hearts. And, and evidently, the, the synagogue that he's preaching at, they love it, so much so that they invite him back next week to preach the exact same message. And look, personally, I, I've never had that sort of experience. Uh, I've never preached a message where it's been so good that the crowd's like, you need to come back and do the exact same thing next week. We want to hear it again. Uh, so I'm imagining Paul got really fired up. You know, the congregation, that they really engaged with what he was saying. Uh, maybe it finished with a round of applause. People were crying. Uh, that, that's the sort of message I imagine that Paul was giving. Uh, and so where we're picking up, 
Uh, a week has gone by. Paul is back in the same synagogue, uh, and he's ready for round two. So here we go, Acts chapter 13, verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Don't you love that? The, the whole city? They're like the entire city is somehow crammed into this tiny little synagogue. Uh, that, that obviously word has gotten out about the amazing uh, tear-wrenching sermon that Paul preached, and, and everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, they, they've crammed themselves into the space in order to hear the word of God. Uh, but verse 45, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. That's a little bit of a, a shift in response this time around. And see, what, what, what I think is happening here is the leaders of the synagogue, they, they see the crowds that have come into their little church. And instead of seeing the potential of, of hundreds of people coming into a relationship with God, all they see is a crowd that they didn't bring into that space. See, what, what I'm imagining is for the last couple of years, these Jewish leaders, they've, uh, maybe they've tried to actually bring people to faith in God. Uh, because evangelism is something that just Jews did. It's not just a, a Christian idea. Uh, and evidently, they, they've never really been that successful. But now this, this rock star preacher has rolled in from out of town, and he's got a brand new message, uh, and somehow his preaching has brought the entire city to church on a Saturday morning, and they are jealous. And look, this isn't the point of tonight's message, so you can just have this one for free, but can I just say that jealousy and infighting it has absolutely no place in the body of Christ. See, if you've been around the church scene for long enough, then, then what you might have seen is sometimes a church will start doing really well, right? So for whatever reason, the congregation starts growing in size. Uh, maybe a specific ministry just does really well or, or, or their community engagement, it just catches on fire. Uh, and what you'll inevitably see is that the church is around it, that they'll start looking at what's going on and they'll start doing the exact same thing that the Jewish leaders are doing here. That they'll, they'll push it down. That they'll revile it. They'll start uh, throwing out comments like, well, the only reason they're doing well is because they're neglecting the word. Or they're watering down the gospel or their theology is all wrong. And, and church, that is not the way the church is supposed to operate. That, that, that the church is not supposed to be a, a, a collection of, of individual little organizations, each doing their own thing and, and sort of competing for, for the people that believe in their region. That we are all part of the body of Christ. We're, we're all on the same team. That the church is a movement of people called out for a purpose. To help the lost get saved, the saved get discipled, and the disciples sent. And, and so here, here at Kemo, what we do is we come alongside other churches. Where we cheer their, their, their wins, we, we mourn their losses, we pray with them. Uh, I mean, one of our main values of the church that has been uh, ingrained to what we do here at Kenmore is that we get it right, and then we give it away. That we give away resources, we give away uh, training, and we give away uh, our programs that we run because we want the other churches to do well as well. In fact, right now, Pat is actually in the process of, of helping build up a, a network to resource and to train church planters. And yes, he's doing that with other members of our denomination, Churches of Christ, but he's also reaching to people outside of that circle in order that more people may be equipped to go out and do the work that God has called them to. 
And not only that, here in the night sessions, because I, I, I know we've shifted things around and we're changing what we're doing, the goal of this space is not to make ourselves a bigger deal than the morning service. We're not trying to make ourselves a bigger deal than any other service in the, in the area. We're not trying to be more hip or, or more relatable than anyone else in order to make a big deal of what's going on here. That what we're trying to do is make a bigger deal of God. And so if us stepping down from the stage and putting the, the chairs in a circle and changing the, the feel and the song list, if that makes it easier for you to come to this place, if that makes it easier for you to invite other people into this place, then, then what happens is, is God is made much of. And that is what we are all about here. Uh, but, but evidently, that, that's not what the synagogue in Antioch is about, because they, they see this move of God and, and they reject it and they revile Paul. But verse 46, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. <clears throat> that Paul's saying, look, this message of, of, of Jesus, the good news of Jesus Christ, it was first for you. It was first for the Jewish people. But since you thrust it aside and you judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. That, that Paul is saying that this, this message of grace, it's a message for everyone. It's a message for Jew and Gentile alike. And, and since the Jews had put their hand up to God and said, no, God, we don't want this. We will do things our way. Paul's like, okay, well, then we will turn to the Gentiles. And can I just say, this isn't God's plan B. It's not like, um, you know, Paul and Barnabas realized that, hey, this message isn't flying too well with the religious Jews, but it's, it's doing really well in the polls with, you know, the Gentile target audience. So we're just going to shift our demographic. We're going to preach to them because that's going to do better. No, this was actually God's plan from the start. And in order to show that, Paul's going to quote Isaiah 49.6. That he goes on, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That before God created the whole world, he had already decided that he was going to bring salvation to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, that that all the way back to, to Abraham in the book of Genesis where God had said, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the way through to Acts chapter one uh, where Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. God's plan had always been that all people would come to know him. All kinds of people, all different backgrounds of people, different races and ethnicities and preferences, that, that the whole world would be able to come into a relationship with the God who made them. And verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and, they glo and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the whole world, the, whole, the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Not the name of Paul, not the name of the church that sent him, the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. All right, so those are the verses that were sort of assigned to this message tonight. Uh, and, and no, that's not an excuse for you guys to all get up and go. We still got a bit of time left together tonight. Uh, but, but what I really want to do with the, the, the rest of the time we have is just do a deep dive into that last verse we just read through. 
Uh, because, and it's on the screen now, verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Because that last little bit, it's one of the most controversial, one of the most divisive topics in all of the Christian faith. The idea of election. And so just, just so I can throw out all the buzzwords right at the get-go, uh, election has to do with things like predestination, Calvinism, uh, Arminianism, all, all the really good stuff that I'm sure you're all really excited to hear about tonight. Uh, no, I'm not going to go too far into the weeds with this, but I do actually think this is a really important topic for us to discuss. Because again, we're looking at, at what it means to have a faith that is visible to the world around us. And in order for us to actually have that, we actually need to know what it means to be saved. We need to know what, what our identity is in that process, what our role is in that process, and importantly, what, what God's role in that process is, because that will determine the sort of faith we have. That will determine the sort of life we have and how we look to the rest of the world. That in order for, for us to have faith that is visible, that, that seeing faith means seeing chosen. All right, so let me give you a couple definitions uh, just to scratch that itch for all the, the, the theology nerds. Um, and, and then I'm going to move on to where I land on some device, divisive topics, and then I'm going to move on to some points that I think we can all agree on, regardless of where you fall in those different camps. All right, so election. Uh, simply put, the elect of God are those people which God has chosen, or if you want to use the technical theological terms, uh, predestined to salvation. That just like we have in this verse, as many as were appointed or chosen to eternal life believed. Uh, the word elect, which is used 21 times in the New Testament to describe uh, Christian believers, uh, it comes from the Greek word eklektos, uh, which simply means something that is chosen or determined beforehand. Uh, so we, we can say in English that we elect a prime minister uh, because we, we come together and we decide beforehand who's going to take that role for the next couple of years. Um, and it's probably not a great example in Australia because for whatever reason the politicians don't like sticking with the people we choose for that period of time, but the, the general idea works. Uh, that, that God elects, God chooses beforehand, or, or, or he knows beforehand, who is going to be saved, and those are the elect of God. Uh, and so traditionally when it comes to the doctrine of election, there are two main camps that people fall into. Uh, one view, which is called the foreknowledge view or uh, the Arminian view, essentially states that because God is outside of time and because he is all-knowing, he can look down the corridors of time uh, and, and he knows who is going to put their faith in Jesus. Uh, and so on the basis of that divine foreknowledge, God elects those individuals before the foundation of the world to be saved. Uh, the other view, traditionally called the Calvinist or the Augustine view, uh, teaches that not only does God uh, choose who is going to have the faith to be saved in Jesus, uh, but he is actually the one that determines, uh, who gives uh, us the faith needed to be saved. Uh, in other words, God's salvation of the elect, it's not based um, on him knowing things ahead of time, but it instead is entirely a sovereign work of God's grace. Uh, so, so personally, I don't know if I fall into either of those two camps, not cleanly at least, uh, push came to shove, I'd probably uh, fall more in the Calvinist camp, if, if that means anything to anyone, uh, but I've always joked that I, I work like an Arminian and I sleep like a Calvinist. 
and three people got that joke, so I'll take that as a win. <laughs> but look, all I really want to do tonight is just teach you what the Word says. Um, that my views on this, that they're not determined by some ancient dead theologian, uh, they're not determined by some doctrinal camp, it is determined by what God's Word says. And so, based on how I view the Scriptures, I'm going to explain to you what I think of the idea of election, and if we have any differences in interpretation, uh, I, I hope at the very least you see I'm coming at this from the Word of God, not from some uh, background in a particular camp. All right, are we all good with that? Okay, I've, I've, lo I've lost all the, the engaged people. It's... Uh, okay, so what, what Paul w walked through narratively in Acts chapter 13, he's going to discuss um, theologically in a whole bunch of places in the New Testament. Uh, so Romans 9, Ephesians 1 are probably the main two uh, source texts for this, uh, but you've also got verses like Romans 8, 28, 2 Timothy 1, 9, John 15, 16, and 1 Peter 2, 9, if you want to go away and do your own homework. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read through Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, in its entirety, uh, because it's probably the easiest place for us to start tonight. So here we go. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world. So there you go. There's the idea of election, uh, that we were chosen before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. For in love he predestined us for adoption. We're going to come back to that idea of adoption in a second. To himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So this is why God says this. To the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now Paul's going to talk about what salvation is. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavishes upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. So again, there's adoption language coming through. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Cool. So does election make sense now? <laughs> we're all on the same page? No. Uh, point number one, so write this down if you're taking notes. Election means that God saves us. We don't save ourselves. Uh, so that, that verse we just read through in Ephesians, uh, in the Greek, it is one massive sentence. Uh, so it's 202 words, longest sentence in the entire Bible, uh, which means, you know, theologians love it, but English teachers hate it. Uh, not sure about how Sandy feels about that, because he's both. He can just deal with that tension. Uh, but <laughs> when it comes to salvation, what we see from that verse is that God is the one doing all the heavy lifting. Uh, there, there are 24 verbs, 24 actions that take place in that scripture, and of those 24 actions, God does 20 of them. So God blesses us, he chooses us, 
He predestines us, he adopts us, he bestows grace upon us, he redeems us, he forgives us, he loves us, he reveals his will to us, he purposes us, he works through us, he seals us, and he gives us an inheritance. That God is is doing all the the real important work there. In fact, all we do in in that massive uh, stream of thought in, in regards to salvation is we listen, we receive, we believe, and we hope. That salvation is God's work, not ours. And really, that is the the, the heart behind the doctrine of election, that that God has to be the one to save us because at the end of the day, we can't save ourselves. There's something inside each and every one of us that prevents us from turning to God by ourselves, and that thing is called sin. That the Bible describes us as being dead in our trespasses, that no one can come to Christ unless the Father draws him onto himself. And see, that that analogy that that Paul pulls on there through that verse, this idea of adoption, I think it actually gets this concept across pretty clearly, right? Because when a parent goes through the process of adopting a child, they are the ones that are doing all the heavy work. Uh, That to initiate the, the parents initiate the application, they do the paperwork, they they fill out the forms, they choose the child, they they bring that child into their home, they, they raise that child as their own, they love them. Uh, they, they do all of that at great expense and great difficulty to themselves. And, and look, I, I actually looked this up this week because I do some research for these uh, messages. Do, do you know how hard it is to adopt a child in Australia? Uh, so let, let's just play this through. Uh, 2019 and 2020, so a two-year period. How many children in the entirety of Australia do you think were adopted? 300? It wasn't a rhetorical question. You you can yell out answers. A thousand? thousand (laughs) Sold. Um, 334 kids. So Alec wasn't far from the first one. That in the the entire nation of Australia, over a two year period, only 334 children were adopted. And, And the reason that's the case is because it is insanely difficult to actually go about the process of adopting a child. There are age requirements, residency requirements, uh, marital status requirements. Uh, you have to go through a whole bunch of medical screenings and, and interviews with doctors and GPs. You need to do a police check and a background check. You need personal references. Uh, someone actually has to rock up at your house, walk around the place, inspect it, and, and make sure it's safe for a child to be raised there. You have to attend information sessions and undergo training and assessment. That the whole process, from start through to finish, on average, takes at least three years to complete. Uh, the admin costs alone, so not the cost of actually looking after the child, just, just pure admin, anywhere between three and $12,000. And once you go through that whole massive process, and you've paid all the fees and you've done all the things, even then you are not guaranteed that a child will be placed with you. That is a long, complicated, and time-consuming process. And you know what the kids are doing through all of that? Not much. That they, they really have no awareness that this massive process is taking place in the background until they re- receive the, the letter saying that your adoption has been approved. And their whole role in that process is just to accept that. Just to be, accept what has been done for them. And, and that really is how our salvation works. 
Uh, that Ephesians 2 uh, verses 4 to 5 says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. That God chases us down, God pursues us that while we were still dead in our trespasses, while we were still sinners, while we were still sons and daughters of wrath, that that Jesus Christ walked into the orphanage of our sin and he looked at us and said, I choose you. I pick you. That again, God is the one who saves. And and look, honestly, I I, I think if you don't actually grapple with that idea properly, I'm not sure how you can receive salvation. Because, because I mean, the Jews in the story, right, the, the reason they, they were disqualified from salvation is because they, they looked at what was being offered to them and said, nah, we've got it. God, God I don't need you to save me. I, I can do it my own. I'll just follow the Torah. I'll, I'll keep the Ten Commandments. I'll, I'll do all the right things in my own right activity. That will bring me into a relationship with God, but that doesn't actually work. See, the only way to receive salvation is to submit and realize that you can never do it on your own. Uh, that there's, again, there's this chasm between you and God and there's no way you can cross it unless Jesus comes and he pulls you across with it. And look, the Gentiles in this story, they got that, right? Because we, we probably can assume that, that most of these Gentiles would have been known as God-fearing Gentiles. So they, they probably knew about the God of the old Bible uh, the God of the Old Testament, uh, they probably sort of worshipped him and, and prayed to him, but because they, they weren't Jews, they couldn't go all the way to the end of that process, right? They, they weren't allowed into certain parts of the temple, uh, there were restrictions on, on whether or not they could offer sacrifices, and, and based on that, that whole limitation of the fact that they were Gentiles, they couldn't have their sin covered properly. They, they couldn't do it on their own. And so to the Gentiles listening to this message, the fact that, that God would actually choose them, that the fact that God would look at them and said, I, I know you can't do it on your own, I know you're not part of my chosen people, yet I will draw you onto myself, that blew their minds. That, that is why they rejoiced, because God had finally chosen them. That, that, that chasm again between them and God had been bridged by the cross. But again, God is the one who saves us. We don't save ourselves. All right, point number two. Election means God saves us because of who he is, not because of who we are. See, what we have a tendency to do as we start diving into this idea of election is we start to think things like, well, if God chose me, then he must have seen something really good in me, right? Right? Like, he must have known I would grow into this sort of person and I'd be a really good evangelist if he picked me. It's like uh, God is a kid in a, in a PE team trying to pick out, like, his dodgeball team, right? He's like, oh, I'll take the athletic kid, I'll take the, the rugby kid, I'll, I'll take the, the guy who's really good at saying his prayers, or uh, I'll take the guy who grew up in church, the guy who can learn to be a great evangelist. And it, that, that's not how God does it. God doesn't pick you because he sees some great potential in you. No, your election, your being chosen from God, it has nothing to do with what you bring to the table and everything to do with who God is. Uh, Romans 9, 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will, not on on exertion, but on God who has mercy. 
Ephesians 2 verse 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Uh, 2 Timothy 1 9, he saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purposes and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the age began. I mean, if we go back to the, the analogy of adoption, can we just agree there's, there's no tryouts in the orphanage? Like, like the way adoption works, it, it's not like a, an episode of Survivor, right? But you know, at the start of the season, the parents rock up and they pick the, the 10 most athletic and attractive children and then they cart them off to an island and make them do a whole bunch of challenges. Uh, I, I guess the challenges have to be a little bit different. Uh, you know, who's the best at doing the chores? Uh, who's not going to talk back to their parents, who can follow instructions, who's going to get good grades, who's going to uh, make the A-teams for all the sports. And then, you know, every, every night the parents vote off an, uh, a kid until there's just one left, and that's the child they bring home for adoption. As, as entertaining as I'm sure that would be, that's not how it works, right? Now, what happens is a parent, they, they walk into the orphanage, and honestly, they don't know these kids, they don't know who's going to do well at school. They don't know who's going to be good at doing the chores. They, 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 they don't know them from a bar of soap. And they're like, yeah, I'll, I'll take that one. I'll choose you. And look, it, it doesn't, it's not quite right. The, the analogy isn't perfect here because it's not like God is a parent who knows nothing about you. Because God knows everything about you. He knows every, every lie you've told. He knows every time you've lost it with your friends or with your parents or with your kids. He knows um, everything you've ever looked at on your computer screen. He knows every promise you've ever broken, every time you've turned your back on someone, your most selfish moments. He knows every thought that you have ever had. And can we just agree, if that's all God had to judge us based on, like our thought life, that, that alone would be enough to disqualify us, Right? But God sees all that. He's like, yeah, still I want that one. Still I choose you. That Charles Spurgeon once said, I believe, the doctrine, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he would never have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for some reason unknown to me for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with any special love. So I'm therefore forced to accept the great biblical doctrine. The church God chose you. Not, not because of you, in fact, in spite of everything you bring to the table. He brings you into his home. He changes your, your legal status to, to a son. He gives you his last name. He changes your identity. He makes you an inheritor of the kingdom of God. Again, not because you deserve it, not because you've earned it, simply because he loves you. And church, when you actually understand that, it changes something. The third point, election means we live the life of someone who is chosen. See, if you were actually an orphan, 
and you were living in an orphanage with no real hope of ever being adopted, no hope of, of someone wanting you, of, of coming into a relationship with people. And then all of a sudden, one day, a, a family, they walked through the doors and then they picked you and they brought, them, they brought you home and they gave you their last name and they loved you as their own. That would completely change how you lived the rest of your life. That, that, that firstly, you get value. Because from that day on, you, you live a life knowing that God actually wants you, that he chased you down, that he values you, that he cherishes you, that the gospel according to eBay says you are worth what someone is willing to pay for you. And Jesus Christ paid everything for you. The, the, the blood of Jesus poured out for the sake of those who would be brought into a relationship with him. That in the world that says you are an accident, the fluke, uh, the fluke re result of like a, a cosmic roll of the dice, what the gospel tells you is that before the foundation of the world, before anything ever existed, God already knew you, he loved you, he chose you, and he wanted you. That you get value. But not only that, you get a purpose. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That, that church, God did not just save you so that you can rock up to church every Sunday. He, he didn't just save you so that you can read your Bible or, or do your quiet time or, or say your prayers every night. Do, do you know that there are tasks in the kingdom of heaven, missions that, that God has prepared for you to do, work he has prepared for you to do, that that does not happen if you do not step in line with what he's actually calling you to. That, that there are people that, that, that God has prepared for you to hear the gospel, that they might hear the gospel from you. That there are people that are going through, through despair and hopelessness that you can come alongside and, and comfort them. That God actually has works that he wants you to do. That again, when we are adopted, we become co-heirs with Christ. We are brought into the family. And that means we get on with the business of the family. And the business of the family is helping the lost get saved, the saved get discipled, and the disciples sent. Thirdly, when you understand that you are elect, you get security. That if you don't deserve your salvation, if you couldn't earn it, you couldn't work for it, then you definitely can't lose it. Uh, that, that you don't have to, to, to work a lot trying to earn the approval of God, that you can fall again and again and again and again, and no matter how far you fall or how often you fall, you can get back up again because you know God has chosen you and so he will continue to choose you. That he picked you out since the beginning of eternity. That fourthly, you get humility. Because when you are chosen in spite of all your bad deeds, there's no room for boasting. There's no room for, for pride. There's no room for looking down on others because God is the one who chose you simply because of how he loved you. And then finally, when you know you are chosen, you get joy. Do you know that, that massive verse we read through in Ephesians, that one long sentence? It both begins and ends with Paul rejoicing and praising God. He says, blessed be the God, our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in the Christ with every spiritual blessing. That when you realize the enormity of what God has done for you, you have this joy that the world cannot take away. In fact, there's actually this story in 2 Samuel where King David, he is dancing before the Lord, right? 
And he's getting so into it that his clothes come off. Uh, It's in the Bible. You should go away and read it. Uh, And so he's just dancing, and he's dancing, and and evidently his wife is not super excited about the fact that he's running through the streets in his underwear. Who would have thought? Uh, And so she, she goes to him, and she's like, David, what have you done? What are you doing? You're making a fool of yourself. And David turns to her and he says, look, I am dancing before the Lord because he chose me, because he appointed me. And he goes on to say, so I will celebrate even more. And he's like, you haven't even seen anything yet. I will make more of a fool of myself because I have been chosen by God. See, church, being chosen, it changes things. It changes the way you look at life. It changes the way you look at yourself. To to, to come back to the whole point of this series, when you know you are chosen, it leads to a faith that the world can see. And and so as we land this tonight and and the band, you can start making your way up however we do this transition now. Uh, (laughs) I actually want to start by, by answering two questions that often come up when we walk through this sort of idea. Question one, does that mean God doesn't choose some people? And question two, how can I know if I'm chosen? And look, honestly, for the first one, does God not choose some people? I don't have a great way to answer that. Um, What I will say is that John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whomsoever believes in him shall not die but have eternal life. That 2 Peter 3, 9 says, the Lord is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And in the, in the last paragraph of the entire Bible, Revelation 22, 17, we're told the spirit and the bride say come. Let the one who hears say come, let the one who is thirsty, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So are are there some people that that aren't part of the elect? I mean, I guess. But nowhere in Scripture are we painted a picture uh, where where a lack of God choosing someone is the reason they don't get saved. In fact, if you go back to Acts, where we started off tonight, for the Gentiles who believed, it's as many as were appointed to life, as many were chosen, they believed. Before the Jews that thrust aside God's grace, they judge themselves as unworthy of salvation. And so look, is that confusing? Yeah. Is that a massive tension to hold inside of you? Yeah, it really is. But it's what the Bible says. And honestly, I don't think the point of the doctrine of election is for us to work out who's elect and who's not. Uh, that well, we're actually told that the, the elect, they come to faith when they hear the gospel and they believe in it. And so if there are people that are elect, then we should preach the gospel to them. They might hear it and become part of the elect. And, and we do that and we leave, leave the rest up to God. But to that final question, how can I know if I'm, if I'm chosen? That one's really simple. You believe. That's it. But the Bible says that no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And so if you wanna know if you're counted among the elect, if you wanna know you're chosen, then you believe. You admit that you're a sinner. You believe that that somehow when Jesus died on the cross, that counted for you. And then you just call him your Lord and Savior and then you know you're elect. And and look, 
I, I know some of your stories and I know that there are people in this room that you've walked through this, right? That that one day an itch started deep down at the soul level and you, you couldn't scratch it, it wouldn't go away and then you got invited to church. And, and if you're honest, you didn't even wanna to go to church. I mean, what in the world would you have to do with a place like that? And, and you went anyway because your friend invited you or because, I don't know, your wife dragged you along and, and you sat through the whole thing with your arms crossed. And you left and like that was a waste of time. And then you come back next week. <laughs> and then you come back the week after that and the week after that. And you're like, you don't even know why you're there. You don't even know why you're coming, but you just keep on rocking up. And can I say, it's because God has chosen you. It's because God is chasing you down. It's because he is pursuing you. It's because he loves you. And, and can I just say, if that's you, you're, you're already too far gone. Like once God has put that itch down in your heart, it will not go away. Because, and you can resist all you want. You can sit with your arms crossed during worship. But one day before you know it, you'll be singing with your hands up high. You'll be dancing before the Lord and you'll be making a fool of yourself because you know you want Jesus. And so look, I'm just gonna finish tonight um, just with an invitation. I know I haven't really preached through a particularly gospel-y message, but if God has chosen some people in this room, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to make that decision. So if everyone would just close your eyes and bow your head just so... There's no distractions, so you don't feel like everyone's looking at you. Um, and, and if you tonight, you, you, you want to accept that, that, that letter of adoption, you, you want to be brought into the family, you want to know that you were chosen, in, in a second, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. And there's nothing special about the fact that you're raising hand. It doesn't signify anything magical. It's just, we just want to pray with you. And sometimes it's like just doing an action helps confirm what God is doing in your heart. So... Uh, if you tonight for the first time, you, you want to accept the fact that you were chosen, would you just raise your hand now? Awesome, I'm, I'm just gonna pray a, a little prayer. And if that is, you just pray along in your heart and then we're gonna respond by rejoicing before the Lord. Jesus, I admit that I need you. I believe that that somehow you, you chose me. And so I, I choose to call you my Lord and my Savior. I belong to you. And God, I, I just now, I pray for a blessing over every heart here. That, that for those who feel like that they aren't chosen, that, that you've maybe turned your, your back on them, that you, you've forgotten them, that you brought them into the family, and now you're just leaving them to the side. God, that right now you would just remind them of how far you went for each and every heart. Yeah? Lord, that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation. That you would remind us that we are sons and daughters of the Most High King. And Lord, that would change how we live our lives that would change the sort of faith we have and it would make it visible to the world around us. So Lord, just bless these guys in your mighty name. Amen.